Tell me turn around and I'm on it for the moment. But you know me, you know how I get when I'm lonely. I think about you in the moments, but everything you do is so open, so open. Foot on the gas, I'm just trying to pass all the red lights and the stop signs. I'm ready to go before I get to the baby. That's a problem, 'cause I'm way too scared to call and you might give me a stay night. Welcome to the Eastern Shore. I'm Brock Winstead. Today on the show, is the orange you see the same as the orange I taste? I'm talking senses, perception, and hacking the body and brain with Kara Platoni. Can you taste umami? There's a good chance that if you're American, until about 10, maybe 15 years ago, you didn't know that word. A word borrowed from Japanese to describe a basic, savory taste that comes from the amino acid glutamate. We might have been able to talk about the flavors of umami-rich foods in a general way, but we didn't have a word for the basic taste that's present in them. In Japan, they've had that word since about 1910. Were their bodies different? Nope. Same glutamate compound receptors. Same things happening on the tongue, but different things happening in the brain. They had a word for it. We didn't. Of course, we do now. We took theirs, and for most of us, it seems obvious now. It tastes obvious. But the relatively recent adoption of umami in the West is just one example of how much we're still learning about our senses and how our brains process perception. The links between our sensing organs and our brains are still being figured out, as are the limits of what our bodies can do within and beyond what we think of as the five basic senses. Kara Platoni is a science writer and a lecturer at the UC Berkeley School of Journalism. Her first book just came out. It's called "We Have the Technology: How Biohackers, Foodies, Physicians, and Scientists Are Transforming Human Perception One Sense at a Time." And yeah, that subtitle pretty much captures it. The book is about scientists who are deepening our understanding of how our senses work and how our brains process what we perceive. And also the people who are trying to figure out ways to repair lost senses or extend our senses beyond what we're born with. Kara and I talked about restoring lost sight, using smell to trigger memories, learning to taste calcium, and trying to sense magnetic fields. Plus, the bigger questions her reporting led her to, like, what is time, and can you sense something you don't have a word for? Here's Kara Platoni, author of "We Have the Technology." On the Eastern Shore, Kara Platoni, congratulations on the publication of your first book. Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad it's out in the world. I'm very excited. I bet uh, it's called "We Have the Technology," and it's about scientists and inventors and all kinds of other people who are 
exploring the limits of human senses and perception and working to create technology or ways that we might move past those limits. Mm -hmm. That's exactly it. repair damage that has been done to our factory components. (laughs) Factory components is a really good way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I always like to ask people why. Why did you end up deciding to make a book out of this? Well, so I've been a science reporter here in the Bay Area for almost 20 years now, which amazes me every time I think about it. Um, And I started to think about what are the things that have been coming up in freelance work for me recently. Uh, A lot of stories about robotics, a lot of stories about the brain. I love cognitive science uh, uh, stories, neuroscience stories. And of course, a lot of the stories about wearable gadgets, you know, things that are supposed to help you optimize something or improve your life in some way or track your behavior in some way. And I started to think about, well, what did all of these have in common? And a lot of them had to do with kind of either augmenting the body or with altering your experience as a person, just the way you experience the world. And then I got kind of into this idea that maybe it all had to do with the senses. You know, just I, at first I was just thinking the initial five, sight, hearing, touch, taste, and smell. But the longer I thought about it, the more I realized it was actually a bigger story about perception, which is everything, all the way your senses put all of this information together and create experiences that are uh, like time, for example, or pain or emotion. Um, And so I started to think, oh, it's a bigger book than just being about the senses. It's really about this thing that happens in your head, your construction of the world. And so I thought there are cool people here doing interesting stuff, not just in the lab, but in the real world. I could tell stories about real people um, showing how this stuff isn't just for academics in a lab. It affects people in real life. And I thought, yeah, that's what I could do. As a journalist, I could do that. So the book is organized. There there are these three major sections. The first part of the book is focused on what we think of as the five basic senses. And a lot of the recent research that people have been able to do about how we perceive sight, sound, etc., is predicated on devices like the fMRI machine that do allow us to say, here is the part of the brain that is activating when we receive certain kind of stimuli. Most of the senses really have a multi-step, multi-segment process in the brain where one thing feeds another thing, feeds another thing, feeds another thing. It's not just, here's the, the little chunk of brain that sees. Right. One of the big things that I learned was that Sensory scientists understand the outside of the body much better than they understand the inside of the body. Um, When I was talking with Dr. Michael Tordoff, who is a a taste researcher, he works at the Monell Chemical Census Center in uh, Philadelphia, Um, and he was saying, you know, we understand the tongue really well. It's very easy to get to the tongue, right? What's happening in the brain is much less well understood, and that is true for all of the senses. For some of them, it's pretty understood where the area is that processes that information. For example, we know where the visual center is. It's really big. The vision is our most dominant sense. So it's understood where vision is processed in the brain. Same with hearing and with smell. Taste is a little bit more amorphous. There is a somatosensory cortex, which is for for touch. Um, But you're absolutely right that what is happening at each level in the chain as information is passed from the exterior sensory organ to where it's ultimately interpreted is not very well understood. So, um, so for vision and, and in vision and in hearing, um, the researchers I talked to would call this the feature space, which was this kind of new term to me. But the idea was that uh, there would be multiple synapses, multiple chains, steps in the chain uh, between eyeball and 
your actual perception of an image, uh, where different neurons would process different parts of the image. And they would go from very, very basic information like XY orientation and you know, dark versus light contrast up to more complex features like what's its semantic meaning and finally to your interpretation of what the image is. But exactly what each group of neurons is doing in this chain and where they are isn't particularly well understood. Not even how many steps there might be in the process. And it's not even uh, quite clear necessarily where each of these areas might might lie. So same with audition. People would tell me, look, we understand how the ear works really well. But after that, as the information travels up the auditory chain, we understand less and less about what's happening at each step Mm -hmm. until you have this uh, ultimate experience, the sensory experience of hearing something. That was pretty interesting and kind of a mind blower. Why? Did you go into it thinking that it was better understood? Yeah, I think so. I think, like most people, I had kind of thought that everything happens, you know, uh, in the eyeball and in the ear and on the tongue, and then magic happens in the brain. You the electricity, know? buzz, buzz, yeah, buzz, and the brain yeah. figures it out. Right, black box, right, and success, um, story over. I, and I don't think I understood how um, we don't have exactly a sense of where everything lies in the brain. We, we haven't have it mapped out. We don't understand exactly what the brain's doing in all these ways. The brain is turning out to be kind of much more dynamic than I had imagined it. I I guess I had this image of it as being kind of static, you know, like it's just like a piece of meat and there it is and it does its thing, right? But really it's this complex place where all of the neurons are influencing one another and there are certain rhythms and oscillations within the brain. The way that information is passed has a lot to do with the um, how the how that information is perceived, if that makes sense. The brain is actually a really active place. And I hadn't really thought of that. One of the things that was very striking to me was um, watching kind of a speeded up video of activity recorded from a guy who was lying in an fMRI scanner. And you could see these little dancing lights as different parts of his brain activated in response to, he was actually listening to a podcast while he was in there. He was listening to the moth. And (laughs) to me, it looked like, um, it looked like watching a time-lapse of a river delta, you know, with kind of the the water ebbing and flowing and things moving. And it made me really think of the brain as a a place, Mm. like a really busy place, rather than just a hunk of meat. FMRI studies have also become a little bit of a punchline in kind of science writing because they sometimes lead to these sort of headline stories where, you know, scientists have found the part of the brain that processes love or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You you write about... in the book about the limitations of that technology. It's allowed us to do a lot of great, find out a lot of great things about how our brains work, but it only goes so far. Where does it, where does an fMRI machine kind of stop being able to help us? Yeah. So an fMRI machine kind of gives you a big picture of what the brain is doing, but it's a blurry and slow picture. Um, So when scientists study the brain, Uh, using fMRI, they divide the brain up into this imaginary grid of what they call voxels, which is volumetric pixels, um, which is basically they imagine that the brain is all these little tiny cubes. And within each of those cubes are hundreds of thousands of neurons. Uh, And the idea is to see which voxels are active when you give the brain a certain stimulus. Well, it doesn't tell you what each neuron is doing, right? It tells you what this community of 
a zillion little neurons is doing, right? So it's very low resolution in that way. And it's also slow because it, basically an fMRI is uh, tracking brain activity by measuring blood oxygen concentration and flow. So when you're, when you're doing anything, when you're thinking, acting, your brain cells consume sugar and oxygen. And then when fresh blood rushes in to refuel those cells, the magnetic fields in the local uh, area changes and the machine tracks that change. Um, so but only at that voxel level. Yes, and, and, at, and at that moment, and it's kind of blurry, it's changing all the time. So a much more direct way of measuring brain activity is to actually to put an implant on the brain itself or in the brain itself so you can look at a much smaller cluster of, of neurons and know ex- more precisely um, what the individuals are doing or at least that you're recording in the area that you're particularly interested in, but that's really invasive. I mean, you literally have to make a hole in somebody's skull, sometimes a very large hole in somebody's skull to put an implant in. Um, and most people, not too keen to sign up Not too keen, and, and usually most of the experiments are done on people who are in the hospital for another reason, where they actually have to have what's called a craniotomy, where part of their skull is removed, or they're undergoing some other kind of surgery or treatment that involves putting an electrode in the brain. So it's not casual. You can't get grad students to do it. And most of the people, and one of the things I didn't realize is a lot of the people who do fMRI studies, they and their Grad students and friends, they're the people who are their subjects because it's hard to convince anybody else to uh, get in this tiny tube and lie there for hours and hours and hours. Perfectly still. Yeah, perfectly still. And I did not realize how they also pack them in there. It's not just a matter of getting in the tube, but they put you in there with all these foam blocks around you to prevent you from moving, and they put like a heavy comforter on you. I would have a claustrophobic attack instantaneously. I would too. I would too. But some people love it. They find it really relaxing. If the fMRI has its limits as a tool, which it clearly does, and implants are not for most people, what's the next tool for people who are trying to do this research? So one of the next tools... That is coming up. It is it is being used in labs now. It's not being used in medical practice yet. Is optogenetics, uh, which is this way of basically controlling neurons with light instead of controlling them with electric current from an implant, and this is a really big deal uh, in a lot of research circles. So just very briefly to explain what this is, the idea of optogenetics. Okay, so most of the current implants use electricity to create. Stimulation. So we already have some, uh, they're called um, deep brain stimulation implants that are basically electrodes that you would put in somebody's brain to control the tremor from Parkinson's disease. They've been used experimentally for severe depression, treatment-resistant depression. They've been used experimentally for epilepsy. And um, the problem with current is that it spreads kind of uncontrollably. So it might affect more neurons than you want, different kinds of neurons than you want. You can't really control exactly which neurons it's stimulating. So the idea is, okay, what if instead of implanting a electric current, we put in a fiber optic cable that delivered light to certain cells? And the way you would make those cells activate in response to the light is you use gene therapy. You essentially put these light-sensitive proteins called opsins in them, and then they respond to different colors of light. So perhaps uh, one color of light would turn that neuron on, make it active, and another would make it uh, silent, right? Now, all of a sudden, you have a lot of direct control over what the neural circuit is doing, and you can also understand kind of exactly what you're doing. You turn certain cells on, what happens? You turn certain cells off, what happens? Does the person get better or not? And light is faster than current, so you could 
essentially create uh, pulses of light that very naturally mimic sort of the way the electrical impulses that the brain um, normally uses to communicate, if that makes sense. So optogenetics has been... um, Theorized, it actually, it has been tested uh, in animal models as a better retinal uh, implant. Instead of using electric current to stimulate the photoreceptor cells in the eyes, you would use light. Um, and it has also, it has been proposed as a better way to make uh, neuroprosthetics, uh, limbs that would respond, that would be able to very naturally read out the brain's intention to move an arm or a leg and then feed information back in. So it's a way of taking our understanding of the brain as an, of the nervous system as driven by electricity and say, yes, and there may be a better way for us to hack the nervous system than just poking it with electricity. Yeah, just poking it with electricity. Yeah, it is, it is much more precise than using electric current. It doesn't uh, spread as uncontrollably. If you have genetically engineered certain cells to respond to the light, you can be sure which cells you're turning on and off. It's much more exact. That said, we don't have any optogenetic implants for people yet. Um, But that is kind of the new tool that a lot of neuroscientists are very excited about. A lot of the people you talk to are alive to the potential applications somewhere down the road of the scientific research they're doing, and that those applications may be good or evil. A lot of these people are motivated by assistive technologies or, you know, restoring something to somebody who's lost some kind of perception. So um, there's a specific slice of the book that is People who are working on uh, projects for people with medical needs, like restoring sight to people who have lost their sight, or creating um, brain-controlled limbs, prosthetic limbs, for people who either have lost a limb or who can't move. They've been paralyzed by stroke or Lou Gehrig's disease or something else like that. But the mind is still functioning just fine. Right, exactly. Or even creating uh, some kind of brain-reading device that could read the internal speech of a person who can't talk. Uh, And they would read out what the person is thinking internally and translate it to a device that can speak it aloud. But then there's this whole other range of people that goes from lab scientists to biohackers in a basement who are saying, okay, what about people who don't have a medical need, who want to explore more, who want to be able to do more? Uh, And so there's this, that whole other group is out there too. What's the one thing that kind of gave you the most hope that you saw? In terms of hope for for people who have a medical need, w- one of the coolest things was uh, meeting one of the first people who's ever relearned how to see. It's this guy named Dean Lloyd. He is an attorney in the South Bay. Uh, he was born with normal vision. He lost it as an adult because of this disease called retinitis pigmentosa. It's a genetic condition, and you, you slowly lose your sight. So he was legally uh, blind for... For about 17 years, uh, basically could tell light from darkness slightly, and that was it. And then he volunteered to be in the clinical trial for this new uh, retinal implant called the Argus II, which is an amazing name for a retinal implant. Mm-hmm. It's made by this company called Second Sight that's based down in Silmar in California. And what this thing does is they actually put an implant inside his eye. And I watched the eye surgery, which I do not recommend, that no, was yeah, that was one of the tougher parts of reporting this book. I didn't watch it live, but I watched the uh, they had a videotape of it. Yeah, what what it is is it's actually a chip that's in the back of his eye, the very back on the interior, and he wears a pair of glasses that has a camera kind of set over his nose, and that video camera translates images to electronic impulses that are fed to the implant in his eye. Those stimulate the surviving photoreceptors he has at the back of his eye. The disease didn't kill all of them. And from there on, the rest of the optic system conveys that information to the brain. So it gives him a very limited, low-resolution version of sight. But 
it gives him something that he can work with. He can walk around on his own. He can recognize objects. He can figure out where things are and what things are. He can tell when you're looking at him, when you're standing near him. Basically, it gives him a lot of information, even though it's very low-resolution information. And that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg of what retinal implants are going to be able to do. There's a lot of room to make them better, and people have some kind of cool ideas about how to make next generations better. And Dean's retinal implant, in a weird way, is superior to our vision in some ways, because because it's running through a computer— he has all of these cool features that we don't have. For example, he can reverse black and white. So, and it's a feature that's there to met, uh, to help him find doorways and windows, other high contrast areas. But he can switch that in his vision. He can also tune the contrast in a way that we can't. He doesn't. That camera that he's wearing is attached to his glasses frames. But theoretically, he could actually hook up to a camera anywhere, right? So somebody else could have the camera somewhere else, or it could be in his hand, or he could be using a web camera, and he could have really true television. You know, the ability to see at a distance. People have talked about at that company. They've talked about facial recognition apps or night vision. He could see in the dark better than we can if they gave him a night vision camera. Uh, one of the things I said to um, one of the guys at this company was, so can you rewind? And he said, not yet, but that's interesting. So that was really cool. That was a very cool thing to, to think about. There are, though, as you say, people who are not just looking at medical needs, who are looking at other things we could do that move beyond the standard human equipment. People biohacking, trying to add senses. This is sort of the superpower question. If you were able to choose a sixth sense to add, what would you choose? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I don't know. Uh, there are, let's see. So the senses that most biohackers are kind of curious about are ones that other animals have that people don't. Uh, so for example, sharks can sense electricity. A lot of animals can sense magnetic fields. Uh, so uh, basically migratory animals like sea turtles and uh, birds, butterflies, even bacteria, which don't migrate, but they have to be able to orient themselves up and down in, in mud. And then there are some animals that have kind of what's called a, uh, like a range extension. So so humans, we can only see um, in the electromagnetic spectrum, we can only see visible light. But there are some animals that can see into ultraviolet or they can sense into the infrared, which we can't. And I have to say, those are kind of the most exciting to me, because what would the world be like if you could see these extra colors or sense them? It's not even clear that they're seeing them. Like, for example, the pit viper senses infrared, but it really it seems to be more of a heat sensing apparatus. It seems to come through its sense of touch rather than its vision which is cool and interesting. That would be really fun. One of the biohackers I talked to said, what would it be like to be able to see a sunset in infrared? And I thought, man, that's neat. But other people said things like, why can't we sense gamma rays? You know, I would love to be able to sense gamma rays. When I was just starting out in this book, there was a, a guy who's not in my book uh, who had developed, uh, he had 3D printed an ear with a radio coil in it. Uh, he had, there was no way to actually hook that up to human hearing at this point, but I thought the idea of a radio ear was pretty awesome. <laughs> Part of what you just said gets at one of the things I find intriguing about the biohacking community, such as it is, such as you represent in the book, is the attitude of it, which is that there's this component of, well, why shouldn't we have that? Yeah. Why, why wouldn't we want to be able to sense these things? Not everybody's wired that way. What is it about these people you think that, that makes them reach for 
the thing that's just beyond typical human reach. Yeah, that's interesting. So so the biohacking community, I, I mean, I know it's not representative of everybody in the world, right? Sure. But And it's pretty big, and there are people who are interested in it for different reasons. And I think when you meet biohackers... There are people who are going about it different ways. So there are a lot of people who would consider themselves a biohacker because they're doing kind of dietary optimization things, things with vitamins, or they're using wearable devices to kind of optimize their sleep or their work habits or whatever. And they would consider that a form of biohacking. The people who I mostly focused on in this book is kind of the mechanical engineering arm of the biohacker universe. They call themselves grinders after the characters in the Warren Ellis, Dr. Sleepless comics, who basically are these people who are kind of disenfranchised with the state of technology and go about building their own augments and putting it in their bodies themselves. The, so the people I met, uh, the grinders I met, who were mostly from this group called Grindhouse Wetware, although I did meet people from other groups like Science for the Masses and a bunch of people who are out on their own. The thing that really motivated them was frustration. Like I have this limited mortal human body. Why, why can't it do things that other animals can do, right? There's all of these things to experience. We're an intelligent species. We're aware of our own deaths. We're aware of our own limits. That is, it is frustrating not to be able to do more and to know more and to experience more, especially since it's out there. And there was a certain amount of frustration with the medical establishment and uh, for-profit companies that aren't making stuff like this to augment the bodies of people without medical needs. You know, why can't I have a robot arm? Right. So they're they're to some degree cursing their dumb meat sacks. Yeah. But also just taking the science into their own hands. And they're sometimes super literally smart. into their hands, I guess. Yeah. No, literally into their hands. Sometimes they were implanting things right into their hands. Uh, I saw a bunch of implantations. But uh, yeah, I mean, these are super smart, very curious people who are aware, by the way, that they're taking on medical risk if they're putting anything in their body. They are not being dumb about this. They are not being casual about this. They know that they risk infection and all kinds of medical problems if something goes wrong. But they, you know, they really remind me in some ways of like the psychonauts of the 60s who were who were like, why can't we experience more? Why can't we have these amazing perceptual experiences? So specifically, the, the guys that I was talking to, so um, just about everybody starts with implanting a magnet. Uh, Tim Cannon, who is one of the founders of Grindhouse Wetware, calls this the blood sacrifice to the grinder gods. It's just the first thing you got to do. <laughs> and uh, and the idea of the magnet is to see if you can have some kind of uh, magnetic field sensation, or maybe not magnetic fields, but um, other magnetic things in your environment. So, for example, you can feel metal, of course, uh, but you can also feel electrical currents. You can feel, you know, a lot of people would say, I can feel when my hard drive spools up. I can feel the refrigerator. When I walk by the speakers, I feel a vibration. Uh, I feel wires in the wall, all that sort of thing. Uh, so the big question, the neuroscience question, of course, is, is that bogus or not? What exactly are they feeling, is right? Is a placebo sense? Right. Or is it, you know, wishful thinking? Or is it really something else? So one of the questions I pose to a lot of people is, well, you're putting your hand, and your hand has all of the receptors for touch in it. Is it possible you're just feeling vibrations from touch? And everybody would say... Well, kind of, but it's more than that. A lot of people would compare it to synesthesia, which is sensory crossover when you experience two things as one. And, uh, you know, like people who see music as a color or they see words on the page as yeah. having color, that sort of so thing. So they're saying, uh, well, it's, it's like touch plus. Yeah, it's touch plus, yes. And so now the tricky thing is there's really not a neuroscientist you can ask about this because nobody studied it uh, formally. But I will say uh, that by the end of the book, I launch a hypothesis about what's going on. The many biohackers I ran it by 
were pretty cool with it. And the neuroscientists I ran it by were pretty cool with it. So I'm, I'm sticking with it. I'm comfortable with it. And it is neither that it is bogus and wishful thinking, nor is it that it's an entirely new sixth sense. But what it is, you got to read it to find out. <laughs> Great. Yeah. In the book, there's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of hope about people in the kind of establishment scientific and, and engineering communities working to address medical needs, and people who are out there hacking their own bodies, and maybe along the way coming up with things with wider applications that uh, other people who might not be so into the blood sacrifice <laughs> might want to have. <laughs> But there is always under the surface, and sometimes you bring it right to the surface, this potential for some of these technologies to have not-so-nice applications. Uh, is, there, is there one thing that you found over the course of reporting for the book that filled you with the most dread? One of the really interesting technologies that I learned about is called stimulus reconstruction. And this is addressed in the chapter on hearing. This is the idea of being able to read out brain activity. Um, or just brain reading, which is the term a lot of scientists will use for it. And it's not mind reading, mind you. It's mind brain reading. Because yeah. you know, I would say to them, hey, "Is it mind reading or brain reading?" They say, "Nobody knows what the mind is. Don't yeah, even yeah. don't even get us started." So the idea of stimulus reconstruction, and this is being uh, a lot of work is being done at UC Berkeley um, in the labs of uh, Robert Knight and Jack Gallant, two different labs who are working on this. The way this research began is essentially they would show people a bunch of pictures while they were lying in the fMRI scanner, which tracks brain activity essentially by reading blood flow, kind of gives you a, a, a cloudy picture of what's active where. And they would show people a bunch of pictures, and then they would try to uh, basically make a mathematical model so that they could predict which images the person had seen. In, order, in other words, they would show you a bunch of images, and then they would try to guess later which ones you had seen by matching your brain activity each time. And it works. It's pretty amazing. They they are able to to recreate at this point essentially a very kind of fuzzy version of what you've seen while you're lying in the fMRI scanner. And you write about people who are doing uh, equivalent work with hearing. Yeah, with hearing, right? So, and the idea is, uh, so first they did this with real sounds. They would actually they would play podcasts and um, spoken speech at people um, who were either lying in an fMRI. FMRI scanner or who were in the hospital um, after a surgery for epilepsy and would actually have an implant um, put right on their brain that read their brain activity. And they would, they would see how their brain responded to sound, and then they would, again, create this mathematical model to reverse engineer it so they would be able to accurately guess what a person had heard. So then they thought, okay, so we're doing this with real sounds and with real pictures, things that people actually saw with their eyes or heard with their ears. What if we can do it with the imaginary? What if we can recreate an image that you've held in your mind's eye? Or what if we can recreate uh, internal speech, which is the little voice in your head, right? Um, and they thought, okay, this would have medical applications for somebody who can't talk. If the person can still form language in their brain, then they could think it, the machine could read it, and then it could either speak it or write it aloud, or sorry, they, it could either speak it aloud or display it on a screen. This would be a great way for people who have stroke or ALS or locked-in syndrome to communicate with the outside world. And the fear is that it could also have wild comic book implications <laughs> for reading people's minds. Yeah, right. I mean, the people I talked to said, think about all of the cool things you could do with this kind of brain-machine interface. What if you used it to compose music? You know, you just hear it in your head, and then, and then there it is. What if you could use it to paint? You know, you have no actual fine motor skill, but you could create an image. What if you... Um, 
just hooked it up to something like Google and you imagined the image you wanted to find and Google could actually go find what it was, right? Uh, so they have all of these kind of fantastic applications for it. But then you have to think about, do we really want to develop a machine that can read your brain activity, right? That seems mind-boggling. It seems like there could be bad, bad things could come of and that. In the book, you and everyone you talk to, you're, everyone's careful to say, we're nowhere close to really being able to do that. To do the experiments that you were just describing, people have to go sit in a machine, in a giant room-sized machine, or have an implant directly lay on top of their brain. So there's none of this, you know, looking across the street and figuring out what the lady in the, in the house over there is, is thinking. But it does lead one to these questions. Right, exactly. So they would say, you really have to commit to it. You really have to give consent. Nobody can do this without you saying yes at this point. But then they would say, but in the future, who knows, right? Uh, uh, Jack Gallant at UC Berkeley kind of jokes tongue-in-cheek about this idea. He sometimes calls it the iHat or the Google Hat, the idea of a wearable device that could actually read out your brain activity. And, uh, you know... All these questions come up about, you know, what if law enforcement decides to use something like this? Or what if government decides to use this? You know, your your brain has always been the most sacred private space in your body. Do we really want to give anybody else entree to that? So that's a really interesting question. So that's one of the themes that really emerges over the course of the book or the, the potentially troubling applications of a lot of the science and technology that you're reporting on. Another theme that emerges is how quickly some of this research that you report on moves from questions of how. How does the brain process sound? Where in the brain and, and what components of the brain are activated when we see certain things? Talking about this research and doing it forces you to move from those questions of how to questions like, what is sound in the first place? And what is a sense and what is perception? Like, you, you get to those philosophical questions pretty quickly. So one of those questions, there's a chapter in the book on time and whether that we have a sense of time. And if we do, where does it live in our, in our brains? But you have to pretty quickly get to the question of well, what is time in the first place? Yeah, and that was a mind blower. And I, I did not have an answer at all. I, when I... I when I realized I was going to write that chapter, I thought, oh, man, I'm in trouble. Uh, luckily, there are time researchers who have better definitions than I do. <laughs> so with the, the best definition that I got was from this researcher at UCLA, a neuroscientist named Dean Buonamano, who studies time in the brain. And he says, time is a measure of how much the world around you changes. And I thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense, right? His argument is that all living organisms, all the way down to algae, have to have some way to sense how the environment and other animals around them are changing. Otherwise, they wouldn't survive. So you have to be able to time your behavior to things that are happening in the natural world. Even a single-celled organism needs to know the difference between dark and light because they have processes that depend on dark and light. Well... For if they have to make chlorophyll, they do. So I thought that was a really cool definition. But the weird thing about time and emotion and pain and these other uh, perceptual experiences that we have that aren't the five senses is that there is no lobe in the brain or area in the brain that just seems to process those things. Um, they seem to be distributed. They get information from multiple senses. And time is one of these things where people keep looking for a time lobe or some kind of internal clock in the brain and they can't find one. 
it seems to be neurally distributed, which is fascinating. So, which by the way, also may be the case for animals that can sense magnetic fields. They still haven't found exactly what part of the animal seems to be sensing it. And uh, that is probably because there isn't a discrete thing that a sensory organ has to, to measure. So like, for example, for your eye, uh, your eye is reacting to photons. There's actually, you know, a physical particle that it's reacting to. So we built this bodily organ that is sensitive to those. With your ears, it's sound waves, so it's pressure. With touch, with your skin, it's mechanical pressure. So we have these organs that evolve to pick up a certain uh, kind of force. Not the case with time. Yeah, so the best definition is that it's a measure of how the world around you changes. And uh, Dean Buonamano, the UCLA scientist who gave me this definition, thinks that the way the brain tells time is through basically changes in neural networks in the brain. He has this uh, analogy that it's basically like throwing a, um, a pebble into a body of water and watching the ripple. So basically, a sensory impression hits the brain, a circuit of nerves activates, they all kind of influence one another, then the effect fades. And then the next sensory impulse comes in and the network activates again. And it's in that kind of uh, repeated uh, ebb and flow of activity that our brains t- that our brain understands time. And we have That's a sense of time passing. Yeah, and we have a sense of time passing. Now, it's really complicated because when you're talking about time in the long scale, that has to do with memory and all of these other brain functions that are layered on top of this basic uh, idea. And the brain tells time on many, many scales. So it may not be the same timekeeping mechanism for all of them. So And different scientists study different ranges, from the millisecond range to the couple of seconds range to the two-minute range. Uh, There are other things that the body does that seem to be different systems, like the circadian system that tells you when to wake and sleep. Mm -hmm. So there probably are multiple time-telling mechanisms. But it's not as simple as saying this is the time part of the brain. Mm -hmm. We know where it is. We know what it does. We can take it apart. None of that exists right now. One of those big thorny questions is whether we have a word for something and how that influences our ability to, in quotes, sense that thing. You talk about that a lot in the taste chapter, Mm -hmm. but how we here in the West didn't have umami for, didn't have that word in our vocabulary, and a lot of people still don't for a long time. We don't have a word for certain emotions in American culture that Mm -hmm. other cultures have. You kind of subjected yourself to some personal experiments. And like in the, in the taste chapter, you went and tried to taste fat and calcium and other things. First of all, you're, you're hitting on this major point, something I, I really wanted to say, which was, so the book is called We Have the Technology. And I, I know that makes people think it's going to be about robots and gadgets, and, which it is. But that's only about half the book. The other half is on other kinds of technology. I, I would consider technology to be anything that people make, any tool that people have made, right? Including culture. Including culture and including language. Language is a technology, right? Uh, there are a couple chapters that are more about chemical technology. The chapter on uh, smell is about uh, perfume, essentially um, uh, scent being used as a way to help people with Alzheimer's. Yes, that's the chapter that made me cry on an airplane. Oh, good. I, wait, sorry, I wasn't supposed to say, oh, good. Sorry. <laughs> and, and so the idea of that chapter is using scents, using perfumes as a way to help people recall memory. Well, that's a technology. It's a chemical technology. The chapter about pain is essentially about Tylenol or the generic acetaminophen. Well, medicine is a technology, right? So the, the chapter on taste is about language as a technology. And the whole idea is, okay, so 
uh, right now we have what are considered five basic tastes. So sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and then umami, this savoriness, this idea that came along. We imported it from Japan. We imported it from Japan in the year 2000. So you and I, when we went to elementary school, there were only four basic tastes, right? Good Uh, enough for granddad, good enough for me. Yeah, exactly. And there are some people who are still like, I don't get this umami idea, right? But when umami came along, the taste researchers went... What, why are there not six? What about seven? What about eight? What about a million, right? Why, why not? So it unleashed this quest to see if there were more than six basic tastes. And I should say, the thing that really convinced people that umami was for real was that in the year 2000, a research team found a receptor for it on the tongue. So a uh, chemical binds to receptor, a physiological experience happens, and the information travels along the gustatory nerves, which is the taste nerves, to the brain. Uh, people can distinguish it from the other senses. There's all these kind of criteria for determining what a basic taste is. So, so umami uh, was finally accepted in Western countries around the time they discovered this receptor. It is worth noting, and it is actually really my favorite part of that chapter, is that it had been accepted in Japan for more than er, 100 years uh, before people in the West were able to taste it. People in Japan could understand, appreciate, name umami a century before, right? So what was going on there? That That was a really cool thing to learn about. So then the big question is, in order to perceive a taste, do you need to have a word for it? Do you need to have a a mental expectation of what it is. Do you need to have a percept in your mind, a category to put it into, right? Or is it the other way around? Can you not develop a word for it? Can your culture not make a word for it until everyone can taste it, right? So it's this big chicken and the egg debate that's going on in the taste world right now. So having having spent some time in your in your work for the book, subjecting yourself to these kind of experiments about uh, can we taste things we don't have words for, can we uh, feel emotions we don't have words for? Did you find yourself coming away with kind of augmented senses? Well, now I have, I know that there's a thing I should be looking for. I don't know. So, well, one of the things that I did on my sofa surfing trip around the world was I went to all of these different labs and museums and kitchens and other places where people were working on the contenders for a sixth taste. So one of them is fat, which the argument is your body needs fat. Your body should have a way to sense fat seems reasonable that it should be a basic taste. Another one is calcium. Uh, there are some labs working on water, uh, carbon dioxide, whether that's a taste separate from the feeling of carbonation bubbles. There's this crazy outlier. I shouldn't call it crazy. It's just very novel idea called kokumi, which is this idea of a basic taste that doesn't taste like anything on its own, but makes the other basic tastes taste better. That I loved that it just makes the rice taste more like rice. Yes. It's supposed to heighten sweet and uh, sweet, salty, and umami. Yeah. And a lot of uh, American scientists say, I don't get it. This idea seems very strange to me. But the researchers who are doing most of the research on Kokumi are from Ajinomoto, which is a Japanese food processing company, which is the company that introduced umami to the world. So they have an amazing track record of being right. <laughs> so, uh, and the fact that, you know, the fact that they were right once and most of the rest of us in the world learned to appreciate and taste umami, we have a word for it. We know what it is now. It's, it is actually very trendy now in cooking, right? There's entire burger chains, mm-hmm. you know, there's umami burger. Here in Oakland, we have umami march. Like, yeah. people, people love umami. And now that people know what foods to associate with it, with, you know, so it's like the taste of caramelization, the taste of Parmesan cheese, the taste Things of... Things that have been aged or cooked for a long mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. Or like slow roasted or stewed. Tomatoes are very umami and everybody says, but tomato tastes sweet. But that's only when it's raw. 
if you, uh, you know, like simmer a tomato sauce for a long time or you fire roast a tomato, it becomes very umami. Now, this is the thing that makes me want to go open the fridge and like take, just take a bite out of the block of Parmesan we have in there. Right. It's the umami craving. Right, exactly. And once once you understand what it is and you get it, then, and then you're like, oh, yeah, I like that thing, mm-hmm. right? So that's one of the arguments for all these people who say maybe there's a sixth or a seventh taste. And we'll, once we figure out what it is, we'll develop foods that exemplify it. We'll start to crave it. We'll have a word for it. It'll just become part of yeah. our life like umami, right? So then, so I went to taste all these things to see if I could taste it. Uh, so I will tell you that I don't want to. I don't want to give away too much in case anybody else wants to participate. But there is a, an experiment going on in Denver at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, where they're trying to crowdsource uh, an experiment to see whether or not people can taste and describe fat. So I went there. I tasted some fat. I will tell you, I tasted something. I will tell you that to me, it was not great. <laughs> Did not taste like bacon. Uh, but I tasted something for sure. I tasted a heck of a lot of calcium, and I can tell you. I I could identify what that taste is. I would recall it again in a minute. But what to call it, I don't know. Uh, I kept wanting to say bitter, but bitter is already a basic taste, right? The confounding thing about a search for a new taste is we don't really have the vocabulary to describe this thing. It's really confusing. Reading, in particular, the chapter on taste, but it does come up in other parts in the book, was not the first time that I have been frustrated by our lack in either the English language or American culture, our lack of a word for things that other people have words for. It's hard not to feel like I might be being robbed of something. If I knew the word, I would be better able to, if nothing else, categorize my own sensations of the world. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that makes me want to reach out like those biohackers and say, "I, I want that thing that's just out of reach. Yeah. It's very frustrating. Isn't that amazing? It's kind of like um, if you ever learned a second language, it kind of makes your first language pop into sharp relief. Mm. It makes you rethink your frame on the world. It's so fundamental to how we experience the world. The I know The Atlantic just came out with a cool article the other day about this very problem in emotion. If your culture doesn't have a word for a certain emotion can you feel it or at least can you understand it right you just miss it you don't perceive it because you're not paying attention to it the whole thing about language is that it directs your attention to a thing the really big picture here is that there is much more information on offer in the world than we can possibly take in so your brain has to filter it has to create a coherent story for your life and it does that by attending to certain details and discarding the rest and there are all of these things that we do in our life that influence what we attend to so language is a really big one but also your past experience uh, is another one it teaches you what's important what's what's salient what to pay attention to because your brain is always looking for patterns what to expect in the world right Your culture is another one. It teaches you how to name things. It teaches you what to expect things to be. It teaches you how to separate one experience from the other. So that's a really big one. That came up a lot in the chapter on emotion and on scent as well. You've just spent a good chunk of your life writing about the advancing edge of a lot of science and technology. The work you wrote about is moving and changing all the time. And in fact, you've got little parentheticals in different places in the book saying how things had changed from the time you did the initial interview to as you were preparing the book for publication. And you know that many of the people that you talk to for the book are working as hard as they can to make your book obsolete. Yes, they are working very hard to outdate everything right now. And that seems like it would be very frustrating as a writer. Did you ever want to ask them, could could you just, st- could yeah. you press pause on science long stop? enough for this book 
yeah. to be accurate. Don't publish anything for a while now. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, no. Okay, so this was this was the big trick, right? And uh, I hope I pulled it off. But um, so I, I'm trained as a journalist. I'm trained as a newspaper journalist. We want to scoop. We want to write about novelty. We want to be the first one there. We want to write about the cutting edge. Publishing is slower, and they want something that can sit on the shelf for many years and still be relevant right? It should still be truthful and interesting five, 10 years from now. So the trick was how to balance cutting edge science with questions and problems that are going to be, if not eternal, at least linger for a long time so that the book does not automatically outdate, you know? And I was very worried that at any moment, something would totally upend any one of the chapters. And in, in fact, the biohackers who I hang out with, um, when they were first beginning uh, this implant called the North Star, which was the idea of a compass that they would implant into their hand. It would light up uh, when you were facing north, turn kind of like glow red when you were facing north. They had It was just wires on a breadboard when I was there with them. And three weeks before the book came out, they came out with version one of it. They actually put it in somebody's hand. It does not have the magnetic uh, element of it working, but they actually have the design. It lights up. It is the kind of star shape. It does what they wanted to do. So in a weird way, they kind of scooped the book, right? Which, which I thought, okay, it's going to happen. But there are enough mysteries of perception. The questions about these technologies and their uses and who they're going to help and who, why they might be welcome or not, those questions are going to be with us for a long time. So, so that was all right. That said, I have a phrenology head that I keep on a shelf as a reminder to myself that this might all be bogus. You know, <laughs> in a hundred years, we might realize how wrong we all were, right? We found an undertongue. There's a whole... So yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's, it has its frustrations, but I will say I enjoyed the book as both a picture of where the science and technology are right now and as a way into those bigger questions about you know, what is time? Why don't we have a word for such and such? And what does it mean to be a human in the world sensing our way through what we think is reality? Right. So I enjoyed the book immensely, and thank you for writing it and sitting down and talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. That was Kara Platoni talking about her new book, We Have the Technology. The book is out now. You can find it at your local purveyor of written materials and online, of course. You can find links to buy it and check out Kara's other work at caraplatoni.com. That's K-A-R-A-P-L-A-T-O-N-I.com. And she's on Twitter at Kara Platoni. This show also has a website, but don't we all these days? It's tespodcast.com. You can find all the previous interviews I've done there. You can subscribe to the RSS feed or find links to subscribe to the show in iTunes or Stitcher. Point your sensing organs to tespodcast.com. This has been the Eastern Shore. I have been, and though it may sometimes seem like a trick of your ears and brain, continue to be Brock Winstead. Thank you for listening. I got nothing to get
writes a lot of songs. Here's one that he and another great guy, Eddie Miller, a very fine songwriter, wrote. Here's Bob to sing one called This Old Heart. Goes like this. This old heart has been around. It's been up and it's been down. It's been walked on till it's half shot. But it's still the only heart that I've got. Well, this old heart has been around. It's been up and it's been down. It's been stood up by every girl in town. But it still looks for love to come around. Yeah, it still looks for love to come around. This is Matt DeMarco. Prepare yourself for some of the best music you will ever experience. Hi. Uh, I, I'm broke ass to it. Oh, 